Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. This week, we'll be discussing Theresa May's olive branch to Jeremy Corbyn, yet another series of indicative votes, and another Brexit extension. I'm delighted to be joined by our Brussels Bureau Chief Alex Barker, columnist Robert Shrimsley, Deputy Opinion Editor Miranda Green, and Political Correspondent Henry Mans. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then please do subscribe to receive it every Saturday morning. We also like positive reviews as well. Theresa May did what might have once been unthinkable this week. She reached out to work with Jeremy Corbyn. After a marathon seven-hour cabinet meeting on Tuesday, the Prime Minister and her government reluctantly concluded that the only way to get the Brexit deal through would be to work with the opposition Labour Party. This came after another series of indicative votes on Monday that showed there was no majority for anything in the House of Commons. But how hopeful are these talks? Will anything actually emerge? So, Robert, Let's begin with the indicative votes on Monday. This was another one of the plans of Sir Oliver Letwin, who became Prime Minister temporarily for one day, put forward another business motion and had another series of votes where MPs said yes or no to various options. And although some things did come quite close, there was once again no majority for anything. Yeah, in a sense, I think the parallel of him being Prime Minister for a day fits perfectly because he was Prime Minister for a day and he didn't manage to get a deal through. So, you know, it's an experience that's been shared. It was an extraordinary thing. Having had the experience of the indicative votes the week before, where the customs union came very close, others did tolerably, referendum did pretty well, Norway was a bit far back. The obvious corollary was to turn from having people able to vote for lots of things to having a preferential voting system and coming up with a conclusion. But they chose not to do that. They chose to press on with the same approach as they'd taken the week before. And although two or three options got very close, the outcome was eventually the same, which was nothing was agreed. It was a shame and it was a waste. And there are certain recriminations in the air against parties that didn't vote for some of the softer Brexit options because they wanted to stay pure for a referendum. But I think in the end, what it showed is what we've known all the way through is that this is an absolute roadblock. And in a hung parliament and a highly polarised one, people have just found it impossible to compromise. Because it was a very testy moment, Miranda Green, as well as we had the dramatic scene of Nick Bowes, who'd quit the Conservative Party right then and there following the indicative votes, because he'd really been pushing his common market 2.0 plan, which was to keep the UK in a single market and a customs union with the EU. It's very clever branding, but it got very little support from Conservative MPs, and Mr Bowes blamed the Conservative whips for rallying against this, but he was very distraught and upset. And the the Conservatives just didn't really engage with these proposals at all, that only 37 Tory MPs said they would support a customs union. I don't think that's true. I think a lot more would. But they're very much still trying to focus on the PM's deal. And the number that I think gave the Conservative whips a bit of hope was that no option got any more votes than the Prime Minister's deal did. Correct. 
and Mr Bowles in his speech where he sort of tearfully said he could no longer sit as a Conservative. Of course, he's already fallen out with his local association, so this is kind of part of a journey out of the party for him. He drew attention to the fact that those on his own party were the least likely to compromise. And it's quite true, when you looked at the bar chart of how all four of those options had gone down and not received assent in the Commons the Conservative Party was staying very firmly out of it. So as Robert says, the recriminations among some of the smaller parties about whether they were actually blocking decent compromises are slightly by the by. I think, by the way, just while we're on that subject, it's partly because there are local elections coming up. There's a leadership election coming in the Lib Dems. There's a new party which is trying to find an identity in the TIGS or Change UK or whatever they decide to be called in the end. And also we might end up fighting the European elections. So there was not just a feeling of not being able to compromise because of their long-held views on our relationship with the EU. They're all now spooked by the idea they might have to face the electorate. And what's their pitch and is it distinctive? So you've got this awful way in which electoral politics are starting to interfere with where people stand on whether you can get a compromise through the Commons. Exactly, you've summarised it very well, this whole sense that Westminster is in increasing deadlock, the frustrations are growing even more, and that there's no clear way out of this, because following the indicative vote, Robert, we then had this marathon cabinet meeting, and it was meant to be a political cabinet where they talk about party political affairs, i.e. a general election, followed by the normal cabinet where they talk about the matters of state, and the two things were brought together for this ultra-long meeting that began at... 9.30 in the morning and it was also to show how little trust there is between the government at the moment because the ministers were not allowed out of Downing Street the whole day. They were kept in the garden and they had their phones taken away from them so they couldn't ring journalists or start briefing people throughout the day. And the sense from that meeting was that the government acknowledged the need to work with Labour. It acknowledged the need for another short extension, which we'll come on to later in the podcast, but not a long extension. So once again, it's just not really solving anything. If you take a step back from all of this, I think the most extraordinary thing about the last week has been that we're all so stunned that Theresa May reached out to Jeremy Corbyn because the fact is in a hung parliament, that's what should have happened two years ago. Now, I know he's of the left of the Labour Party and the Conservative Party has moved ever more towards the right, but this is the fundamental place where we should have been two years ago and it's extraordinary that it actually had taken this long to get there given the circumstances we're in. But nevertheless, it's arrived and it was the only place in the end that she had to go if she wasn't prepared to accept a no-deal Brexit, which clearly many in her cabinet were. And I think one of the things that we've seen over the last two or three weeks is something of a journey for Theresa May because we know that two or three weeks ago she had a very serious wobble and the remainers in her cabinet were deeply concerned. I remember talking to one who said, you know, fortunately there'd been a course correction a couple of days later and she was back on track. But there was clearly a moment where Theresa May was at least wavering towards going the other way and she finally switched. And I think there were two or three things that made this happen. The first was all the bravado talk among some Conservative MPs about we should go for an election, we should face this one down. They got a very clear briefing of just how bad that election was going to be for them. It shouldn't have taken a briefing for them to realise it, but nonetheless, they did. And they looked at things and said, OK, that's not the way out of this. They also started to get a sense of the frustration from their own MPs going out campaigning, as Miranda was pointing out, in the council elections. And people are saying to them, we're going to lose our council seats. We're going to lose our councils because you people cannot get your act together. 
And the last thing, which again someone said to me, had really begun to hit home to her in the last couple of weeks, was the union. And this sense that she has been persuaded more forcefully than she was persuaded before that a no-deal Brexit is an enormous jeopardy to the union, not only to Northern Ireland, where you would quickly end up, I think, with a border pole and possible reunification of Ireland, but also then in Scotland. And she has been persuaded that this is a major existential crisis for the union if she allows a no-deal Brexit. And that's why she's moved forward to this next position. I do think, Miranda, we can quite clearly say now Mrs May does not want to do no deal. That was really, I think, the upsum of the Cabinet meeting this week, that as Robert said, she's been going from side to side on this quite frequently, but everybody who left that Cabinet meeting had concluded, whether it's because of parliamentary arithmetic, the union, the economic cost, whatever it is, she really doesn't want to do no deal, and she's going to do anything else that avoids that, including working with Labour, or going for a long extension, or even, another thing we've seen this week, is more people starting to talk about that second referendum. Well, let's hope that she is part of the solution to prevent no deal because it's still a danger and accidents can happen. And this is a very, very dodgy situation that the country's now in. I would have to say very much along the lines that Robert has outlined that I think this re-entry of the SNP and the Scottish independence threat into the picture is really, really significant. I thought it was very impressive, actually, that the SNP were the one party which did compromise during those indicative votes on Monday. You know, they went for options that were not their ideal in order to prevent no deal. And in the last couple of days, you've really seen Nicola Sturgeon, the SNP leader, being much, much more vocal about the different attitude in Scotland to the whole issue. She's been making statements saying, we welcome EU immigration. You know, she wants to distinguish it as much as possible, because if there is a bad outcome, or even frankly, if there were to be another referendum where, again, Scotland voted differently to England... You know, it's game on as far as the SNP is concerned. So I think Robert's right. And I'm very delighted to hear that that might have been a major influence on May's change of heart. I think this question of reaching out to Corbyn, I mean, clearly it's incredibly dangerous for her in terms of her own party who are already crying betrayal. Yeah. And also they're already crying betrayal over her deal and what it actually represents, the vassalage accusations. And now you've got the Daily Telegraph, the kind of house journal of the Conservative Party, having its front page, Corbyn in the driving seat. They are really not going to like this. But quite rightly, again, as Robert said, this is where we should have been all along. You have a 52-48 referendum. You have to have a national solution with everybody involved and buying in to the path that the nation chooses. I mean, whether they can actually come up with a compromise that gets through either of their parties, of course, is a completely different question. You've already seen letters going into Corbyn by groups of his own MPs saying, you can't sign up to this, you can't sign up to that. You've got to have a referendum, you've got to do a deal, you can't do a deal. Exactly. So whether we can actually find a way out of this mess still, now that we've at last reached the point of the two main parties talking together, is entirely questionable. And one of the other reasons why it's so significant that the parties were not able to work together early is because it changed. I think when we look back at this process with a bit of hindsight and a bit of distance, we'll see that it changed the fundamental nature of the debate about what Brexit was. Because from the moment Theresa May decided that this policy was owned entirely by the Conservative Party 
and determined by the Conservative Party, she essentially placed Brexit in the hands of her hardcore, who were at the time a minority. And what happened is the hardest of Brexiters became the arbiters of what Brexit was. Whereas, if it had been obvious from the start of the process that she was reaching across the parliamentary divide, the middle ground of Brexit would have been somewhere else entirely, and the hard Brexiters would have been marginalised from the start. Now, that's a problem for Conservative Party discipline, but she's actually turned into a much bigger problem for Conservative Party discipline because she encouraged them to think they had control in the first place. If they'd understood from the beginning that they were outliers and that their job was to try and pull Brexit from being ultra-soft to being only mild... I think we'd be in a completely different position. I think she'd be in a completely different position. And also, frankly, I mean, the Brexiters have brought this on themselves. The reason that that she is being forced to work with the Labour Party is because they won't vote through her deal, which would allow us to leave the EU. So, in a sense, on their heads be it. But I think also it is a problem for Labour. And so this idea that they will be involved in delivering Brexit, even though the talks have given Corbyn this sort of status which the Tory party don't think that he should be given. It is a huge problem for them. I mean, if you look at what happened in the Newport West by-election this week on Thursday night, both the main parties are going down at the expense of smaller parties. Both main parties will have groups on one side or the other who think that their wishes have not been honoured. The issue for Theresa May, of course, Robert, is the fact that consistently the Conservative Party has said Jeremy Corbyn is not just wrong, but he is dangerous. And they've hammered that message so much over the past couple of years. And when you looked at PMQs this week and you saw Conservative MPs one by one come out by saying, you said this man is a threat to this country's national security. You said this man would crash the economy. You said this man is a terrorist sympathiser. And now you're working with him because it's slightly different from another other normal opposition leader in this base and and if she'd created a cross-party commission and brought the Lib Dems in or tried to bring the SNP it would be different but these talks are different because Theresa May's met with Jeremy Corbyn many times to talk about Brexit before but these talks had an air of formality that you hadn't seen before. Senior civil servants were involved. Ollie Robbins the chief Brexit negotiator was involved too so I do understand those frustrations of Conservatives. I think you're right. What you're describing at PMQs is exactly correct. I do think there are a couple of phenomena here we need to factor in. Number one is this debate has been dominated by the people with the loudest voices all the way through. And one of the things you notice in Parliament is that there are three, maybe 400 MPs who just want to do something sensible. And even in the Conservative Party, there's an awful lot of MPs who are just quietly trying to get on with this. They're pro-Brexit. But it is driving them spare seeing Brexit being represented by Jacob Rees-Morgan, Steve Baker and Marc Francois. They actually are much more pragmatic. So I think they are looking at this and saying, well, let's just see where we get to. There is real outrage about the way she's boosted up Corbyn a bit. On the other hand, if the talks don't actually formally succeed then a lot of that outrage will dissipate. And I think both parties have quite an incentive not to actually reach a formal agreement on this, more to sort of just agree a process. And then Jeremy Corbyn can move his Labour bloc in the way he wants to move it, but without formally tying himself to Brexit. That's very much my sense too, Miranda, that they're not actually looking to do a deal here because both politically it's not really in their interest because if Theresa May does strike a deal with Jeremy Corbyn, that betrayal narrative will just go completely through the roof from the Brexiters. You know, Mark Francois might actually explode on TV, for example. <laughs> then on the Labour Press side... Press your red button now, yes. <laughs> on the Labour side, that if that happens, then the whole narrative of working with Tories, supporting the Tories will be very difficult. So I think what they 
actually want to do is agree this system of having votes. So we had these indicative votes this week. We are going to have more. But what Theresa May has said is that these indicative votes will be binding and that the government will organise a system where MPs can rank their Brexit choices. We don't know if it's going to be single transferable vote or a ranking system or just put in a bit of paper and say what you would quite like. And that will happen next week and that will try and dictate what comes next. And if they do agree that, I guess that's where the process goes next in Westminster. Well, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because it really comes round to what May has wanted to do all along, which is to just try and force her deal through somehow and some way. By wearing everyone down. By wearing everyone down, once again, by attrition. And if they can find some way in which it's a runoff between her deal and some other option, and if they can fix the preferential voting system in some way, then that's potentially quite a good outcome for her. I'm interested in what you both said about the Corbyn May talks because perhaps we should just think a bit about how little that would then solve the fundamental problem with the deal which is the open-ended destination in terms of our final relationship with the EU. So it's you know, once again, the party politics determining whether we actually find a way out of the morass and have a clear final resting place in terms of what we want to achieve in our next set of negotiations with the EU. Because I got a message, Robert, from my ministerial aide when we're asking around about this idea of STV, would they have a single transferable vote? And this person said back, well, actually, that would be great for the PM's deal because it's nobody's favourite, but it's nobody's worst option. Yeah, I think there's one key factor in how the Prime Minister's deal does in these runoff votes, which is whether no deal is allowed to be an option. I think if no deal is allowed to be an option, then the number of votes that the Prime Minister will get is quite low and her deal could fall out quite early. But if no deal isn't there, which they could easily decide it shouldn't be, if it isn't there, then hers is the hardest Brexit option. It's the option preferred by most of the Conservative Party, and therefore it will do quite well and get quite a long way in. I still slightly struggle to see how it gets enough to get a majority against a moderate alternative Brexit option like the customs union. It might do better against Norway. But I think if they set the voting system up the right way, her deal is very much still on the table. But doesn't this create the issue as well that, yes, you find that her deal or maybe customs union, people can coalesce around, but that's not a sustainable majority to even win a meaningful vote or get all the legislation through for this deal? Oh, look, I'm not pretending it's an answer in the long term, but I think if anything comes out of the Corbyn May talks, it could be an agreement that they will all respect the Commons vote and they will let the legislation go through while continuing to fight about the future destination. Because obviously, one thing we have to remember is that Theresa May's not going to be here much longer. And so, so we think. And so, oh, I think that ship has now sailed. Furthest edge of the envelope is the end of the year. So Theresa May is not going to be the one that leads these negotiations for very long. So even if Jeremy Corbyn thought, wow, you're a woman I can do business with, she's not going to be there that much longer, which is why he's got to lock a lot of this stuff down. And so you're completely right. There is a ton of legislation to get through. There's a ton of future stuff to get through. One of the things the Prime Minister's agreed is essentially a meaningful vote on the next stage of the negotiations as well. So we could be doing all this again for a long time. So the one thing that all parties will have to accept is a degree of abiding by the outcome of what happens this week and making sure they don't obstruct the legislation in an entirely negative way.
And finally, Miranda, one thing that is getting talked at more by MPs and ministers who have been voting for it is this idea of a second referendum or a confirmatory referendum or an electoral event, as Philip Hammond has called it this week. And the idea being that this is going to have to play some role in getting a deal through the House of Commons. Do you think that is becoming a more likely outcome for this whole thing? I think it is very much in the way that the Wilson government identified the idea of holding a referendum on Europe as a life raft, i.e. you literally delegate responsibility for this decision that none of you want to take to the electorate. And particularly for the Labour Party, it's looking more and more attractive because this idea that we've discussed many times that Labour leadership don't want their hands dipped in the Brexit blood fine, let's dip the electorate's hands in the Brexit blood and get them to either approve the deal or reject it. There is a huge issue with the referendum that only offers the May deal or remain the status quo, which is you will find a lot of Brexit voters feel completely disenfranchised by that process. So you may solve one set of Brexit problems. You have not solved the kind of divisions in society caused by the referendum by doing it that way. And we could probably have a whole other podcast just on this issue, Robert, but then there's also the issue about do you have no deal on the ballot paper because MPs are very unlikely to put it there, but if you don't have that there, then you'll see a lot of Leave voters just opting out. Uh, and you I could, think you're completely right. I mean, that could easily be the price of maintaining a semblance of Conservative unity. There's one thing I wanted to pick up on that Miranda said, which is this notion that you solve the party's problems by putting it out to referendum, which is, of course, absolutely what the parties think. But if we look at the history of a referendum on the EU, it's the exact opposite. In fact, having a referendum exacerbates the problem that the party had, that the party wanted to solve, because it leads what was a split to become an absolute fissure. And we're seeing this again and again. They need to learn that this is not the answer to their own problems. Mrs May also bowed to the inevitable this week by delaying Brexit once again. On Friday, the Prime Minister wrote another one of her dear Donald letters to ask the EU 2070s to delay the UK's exit until the end of June. The fact is that she has struggled to get her deal through and still has no prospect of doing that and has decided against a crass exit on April the 12th. But once again, Theresa May seems to be going against what the EU has specifically said, that it will be a short extension or a long one. And this means we are probably going to have European Parliament elections. So, Henry Mance, let's just begin in Westminster with this story that Theresa May has been very insistent, I don't want to delay Brexit, I really don't want to delay Brexit, but by the way, I'm going to delay Brexit. And that happened again this week, thanks to a backbench piece of legislation. And as we were talking about earlier, we had those indicative votes on Monday, they produced nothing. And so Oliver Letwin and Yvette Cooper sweeped in to put forward a bill that would force the Prime Minister to delay Brexit. And it's the first piece of legislation, I think, in living memory that is going through Parliament that was not put forward by the government. Yeah, it went through by one vote on Wednesday night, very dramatically, and then uh, is going through the House of Lords, the upper chamber, although a few Eurosceptic Lords are kicking off and trying to delay it and saying, oh, we need several days to analyse this bill, even though those several days will mean that we actually leave without a deal. I think there are two things that have crystallised in Theresa May's mind. One is that Parliament 
does have the will to stop her from going for a no-deal Brexit. And the other is that as a responsible government, a no-deal Brexit would be a very ill-advised course. Now, the question comes about the length of the extension. And so many people, even in her own cabinet, let alone the wider Conservative Party, are opposed to a further extension that she's had to really keep it as short as possible. I think she's gone back to the original date, June 30th, that the EU rejected last month. So this is a slightly farcical situation where she's claiming things have changed and therefore we can now put in this June 30th date. But it really looks like a political device to stop her from having to confront her own party. And we know this from that epic cabinet meeting this week that ministers are totally divided on how long that extension should be. And there were all sorts of briefings flying around about how many ministers were for a short extension and for a long extension. But we do know that if she tries to push it longer or if it's forced longer towards the end of the year, that's going to be very problematic for Eurosceptic people like the Transport Secretary Chris Grayling and the Chief Secretary of the Treasury Liz Truss or even the Brexit Secretary Steve Barclay who said in Cabinet this week, fine, we're happy to go till June but we're not happy to go beyond that. Yeah, I spoke to one Remain minister this week who said, not one of the ones who Brexit, true believers, shall we say, that you mentioned, but a Remain supporting minister who said, ah, oh, you know, even for me, an extension is very difficult. You know, they don't want to go and fight two election campaigns, the local elections at the beginning of May, the European elections at the end of it, in which they're going to be confronted with the fact that they failed to deliver Brexit. And I also think there's a bigger sort of political issue, which is the more votes you have between now and Brexit day, or the scheduled date of Brexit, the more distant we come from the 2016 referendum and the harder it becomes for the Prime Minister to say I represent the people. I'm implementing what they say. We've got more and more democratic events, to use Philip Hammond's phrase, which you were saying earlier, that uh, really weaken that link. So Alex Barker, this letter dropped early on Friday morning. It had been long expected that this was going to happen and it had to arrive several days before next week's European Council Summit to make sure the leaders could actually see it in time because in recent weeks, Westminster has failed to understand that these papers do need to get there in time to get round all the 27 capitals. What was the initial reaction to Theresa May asking for June the 30th when June the 30th had already been ruled out? Well, first of all, you've got to remember that I mean, there's been conversations about this behind the scenes before the letter landed. So I mean, they were aware that June 30th was coming. And it's quite important to know that when you think through what Donald Tusk, the European Council president, suddenly emerged with on Thursday night and Friday morning, this idea of a long extension of a year that can be cut short if the UK is able to ratify the withdrawal treaty. And I mean, that was quite deliberately done, I think, because the EU side realised that Theresa May was not in a position to be able to ask for a long extension, even a long extension that could be shortened. She was trapped by her cabinet to some extent. And so Donald Tusk was taking the initiative in bringing this forward so it didn't just look like Theresa May was going to ask for June 30th, the thing that the EU leaders had rejected not so long ago, barely two weeks ago. Just to pick up on Henry's point about how farcical some elements of this are, you know, the June 30th date would mean Britain would hold elections on May 23rd, as promised in the letter, would elect a whole bunch of MEPs who would actually never sit because the new parliament would not meet until July 2nd. So we'd have literally an election to pick some MEPs who would never do their job. And this has been the 
issue for Theresa May, Alex, because she said very quite clearly, I will not lead us into European Parliament elections. We cannot have European Parliament elections. And I do get her point there that it's been almost three years since the UK voted to leave the EU and now British voters are being asked again to vote for MEP. So I can see why she has that frustration there. But the fact is that the EU has been very clear on that. So we are now facing... It's not a matter of the EU being clear. I mean, this is a legal obligation. I mean, you can't imagine a minister standing up in Parliament saying, we're not going to hold elections as we're supposed to under the treaty, under UK law, because we don't like the political impacts of that. It's pretty unthinkable. So if we get to May 23rd, there's a legal obligation on the UK to hold those elections, and it's pretty hard to sidestep it. For sure. And the key thing is this guillotine clause to simply say once the WA is being ratified and that's done, then you don't need to have these elections, but which would also give us the slightly farcical thing here of having a campaign for European Parliament elections, which will be highly polarised. You will have Nigel Farage's Brexit party and what was UKIP on one side, followed by the very strong pro-European the independent group on the other side and they could just have to stop campaigning with one day's notice if the deal gets through. If the deal gets through is the key part of that. It's great concept to have this flex whatever I can't even say it flex tension that Donald Tusk mentioned but actually that's always been the case with the Brexit process. In Article 50, it says you leave either at the end of the two-year negotiating process, which can be extended, or at a date set in the withdrawal treaty. It's always been flexible. The problem isn't Article 50 or the law or the deadline or the cliff edge. The problem is that the UK can't pass a withdrawal treaty. And that will exist whether the European elections is, is coming up or not. Yeah, the maths for Theresa May's deal probably looked worse than they did when uh, she lost a few days ago. Now, there are talks going on with Labour. Is there a possible compromise between Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May that could command a stable majority, a sustainable majority of MPs? I looked at some of the numbers this week. I think it's actually pretty difficult because you've got a large number of conservative Eurosceptics who would not accept anything with a customs union, which is a key Labour demand. And you've got a large number of Labour MPs who are now committed to opposing any deal which doesn't have a second referendum in it. So you could just about get to 330, 340 MPs. That's a very slim majority of the House of Commons. But I think the more likely scenario is that too many people peel away from both sides and that this compromise doesn't actually work. And of course, as soon as you have a long extension to use, as you said, Philip Hammond's lingo of an electoral event, these things all start to come into play, which is a general election. If the confidence of the House is lost, possibly by some Eurosceptics sitting on their hands and being so fed up with the situation, a second referendum, again, which has been more talk about this week. So the whole thing really just goes up into the air once more and no one really has any idea how this thing could end. But the least likely option does seem that Theresa May's deal passes in its current form. Yeah, I thought there was an interesting intervention this morning from uh, Bernard Jenkin, who's one of the 34 Conservatives who have voted against um, Theresa May's deal. He's a hardline Eurosceptic. And he said, you know what? I'm not going to be threatened with a long extension into supporting this deal. I would actually prefer another year in the EU so that we can leave properly. We have all our rights under Article 50 to negotiate, etc., than to accept this withdrawal deal. And so you've got people on both sides, the hardline Eurosceptics and the hardline Remainers, who want to go long. And you've got a group of people in the 
middle who want to talk about other things, who want to secure their legacy, whether it's in Theresa May's case or want to get onto public services in Jeremy Corbyn's case, who may be prepared to see something through. And I think at the moment the centre can't hold. I think that's very true. I think we'd all like to get onto other things at some point. Alex, what do you think is likely to happen at the summit next Wednesday that this letter's now gone there? And as you said, there's been a lot of back-channeling, as you'd expect, so you know what's going to go on. So would the most likely outcome be they say no to the 30th of June, but you can have a year or two years of the guillotine? What are you hearing on that? So much like in Westminster, I think uh, everyone here wants to get onto other things. And had Theresa May asked for a long extension, I think that would have gone through pretty easily. The most important criteria is the willingness of the UK to hold the European elections. She's confirmed that in the letter. They probably want to see the order moved that declares the poll as well. So they have evidence that Britain is properly preparing for the elections. The fact that she's gone short complicates things quite considerably. France, Emmanuel Macron, is wary of taking responsibility for the decision of when Britain should leave. They don't like the idea that the date should be imposed on the UK. They want the UK, if it needs a long extension, to ask for one. And there will be some political debate around that with Donald Tusk and Angela Merkel at one end, probably, and quite a few countries that have reservations. The second factor is that the potential risks that group of concerned member states have about keeping the UK in, where you might have a new prime minister, you might have a new approach to business of the EU, where the UK would try and use its voting rights in a way to disrupt and sabotage and make life difficult for everyone else. Specific points, for instance, are the EU budget, the selection of a new European Commission president, uh, other top jobs, and how the UK would use its vote in a situation where, you know, a law is going through and there's close to a blocking minority, will the UK make a decisive difference in situations like that? And I think you'll see the French president make a big push for some binding assurances that the UK will act in good faith and more so, like, not use its voting rights in a way that might affect the course of the club that it's leaving. So those two factors have to be borne in mind. But I think ultimately, if one leader decided to veto this, it would really destroy that sense of unity that they've worked so hard to build over the last two years, because the Irish, for one, will be very reluctant to see a kind of hard deadline put on an exit that could lead to a Britain leaving without a deal. So I I suspect we'll move towards a long extension. I very much doubt it will be two years. I suspect it will be closer to nine months or 10 months. It's interesting that Jacob Rees-Mogg, the head of the European Research Group, which is the main Brexit caucus in the Conservative Party, he tweeted this morning very much to that point, Alex, saying that if we're going to be trapping for long extension, then we should veto budget, we should make life difficult for Monsieur Macron, and I'm sure that will go down very well. But this long yeah, extension... exactly the fears they have. When you speak to some more seasoned people in Brussels, 
They point out there's not going to be a vote on the budget inside the next year. The EU top jobs, as we know, David Cameron was uh, quite easily outvoted when he tried to stop Jean-Claude Juncker. And frankly, before the end of the year, there's barely going to be any legislation going through because the institutions are going through this transition. We've got a whole change of guard. So it will be a little unusual to have the Brits around the table for that period. But frankly, it has been for the last two years as well. So there will be argy-bargy about these commitments and assurances, but I think it's quite easy to find a way through in the end. But how's that going to go down in Westminster, Henry, that if Mrs May comes back next week and says, well, I asked for the end of June, that's not on offer, therefore it's going to be the end of the year or year, as Alex was saying. And MPs will then say, well, hang on a minute, I'm not very happy with that. And the Cabinet has to deal with that. So do they stay and accept it? You know, MPs might try and amend the motion, but it won't do much good because obviously what the EU decides is international law and that rises above whatever Britain decides. But it could get pretty messy for Theresa May at that point, because I imagine most other MPs outside her own party will accept a longer extension. I think the amendments to the Cooper Letwin bill this week showed that there is a clear majority for a longer extension. But it could be problematic once again for the Tories. Yes, and intriguingly, Theresa May may well have to come to Parliament on Tuesday and put forward her proposal for an extension to a vote amongst MPs. Now, I think a lot of Labour MPs and indeed some Tories have been quite reluctant to the idea of extending Article 50 um, towards the end of the year. I mean, there were previous iterations of this which failed. So I wouldn't be at all sure that the Commons will impose a longer delay on her. But what's absolutely baffling is that you could have a situation where Theresa May comes back from the European Council having agreed a very long extension, i.e. more than three months, potentially, And this is just a couple of weeks after she basically promised to leave Downing Street. She promised that by that time, a leadership election would have got going if her deal had got through. I think there are a lot of people with itchy feet who want to get onto a a less painful type of politics, even if Brexit isn't solved. I think the Prime Minister's position becomes more and more difficult the longer that delay is. And finally, Alex, we get this one long extension through... Is there a chance of another extension? Because you could totally see a situation where Brexit is sort of treated like Chernobyl and there's a sort of sarcophagus built around it and everyone just ignores it because it's too toxic to try and deal with. Then we get towards the end of this year and it's like, oh, hang on, we're facing a no-deal Brexit again. Maybe we have a more Brexit-supporting Prime Minister in Downing Street, you know, a Boris Johnson or a Michael Gove, for example. But at that point, it's the same dilemma we're facing now. Can you pass the withdrawal agreement? Probably not. Is it a softer Brexit or is it a no-deal Brexit? So is there a sense that this could be the first of many extensions? Well, one reason they're going for this long version, if they go for it, will be that they don't want to be pulled back for summits every month for another drama over Brexit, that they don't want the serial extensions. And I think that probably goes for the long version of the serial extensions too. If they do say 10 months, a year, whatever the number is, they may well indicate that another extension is going to be unlikely and that that really is the end of this process. And what they'll then be saying is, look, you've got all this time to sort it out. You can leave whenever you like. You can decide to revoke, but we've got to keep you at arm's length from the day-to-day business in Brussels because it just can't, as the French president said, hold this place hostage. And if we do get to the end of the year with the same debate about the withdrawal agreement, the backstop, whether we've got enough numbers in Westminster, by then I think they'll be a lot better prepared for a no-deal exit. I expect the willingness to uh, cut this whole process 
short will be uh, much higher. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to Alex, Henry, Robert and Miranda for joining us. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed what you've heard and would like to see more FT journalism, then our latest subscription offers can be found at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Elliot Kime. Until next time, thanks for listening. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.